This podcast features explicit language and spoilers. To Better Late Than Never, a movie podcast where I invite a friend to watch a blockbuster, a cult favorite, or an otherwise culturally significant film that they've never seen before. After we watch the movie, my guest will decide if it was better late that they've been missing out by not having seen the film, or never. The movie just didn't live up to the hype for them. My name's Dave, and I'm your host, and this week I am joined by returning guest josh now in what is it the seventh seven timers club seven timers club baby i've got my gold jacket on and we are watching a movie that he has never seen before blade runner from 1982 oh i thought this was from the 70s okay cool we're learning stuff already josh welcome back to the podcast hey i'm gonna i would say thank you for having me but uh but you won't. You know, I'm I'm a fan favorite at this point. You sh- you should be having me more regularly than you currently are. I'm apparently not the you you dropped seven episodes, but that's not the most. I've have not been on this podcast the most, and no. that's, that's offensive to me. Well, the thing is, Josh, you might be a fan favorite, but it's it's just fan favorite. We only really have one fan. And that person has expressed that um, they would like to be on the podcast the most. Is, so. <laughs> so the one fan is also Drew, is what you're saying? Uh, as far as the stats show, I, I think maybe. I thought there were. I thought the fly was very popular in Sweden. Isn't that something like that? It did weirdly well abroad, yes. Interesting. Switzerland, well, though, not Sweden, oh. which makes more sense. Uh, well, you know, some, it's like a lot of heavy metal bands that had no U.S. following were huge in Japan, and they would go... They would yeah, like Spinal these, Tap. Well, yeah. the Probably the best example. Uh, great to be here. No, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm obviously joking. It's wonderful to be back on the pod, and it has been a while, I realize, since we've done a solo bolo, so... Uh, I'm very happy to be doing a classic better B B T B L B N. It's like the sandwich B L T N. (laughs) All right, listeners, that's my time. See you next week. Always a pleasure to have you. Uh, so Josh, you've never seen fucking Blade Runner. Yeah, this is a, well, obviously uh, that's like a bad one because I'm a bit of a nerd. Uh, as, we, as we've established, I I've seen all of these Terry Gilliam movies, even the obscure ones that no one has seen, and yet I haven't seen Ridley Scott's Blade Runner, a huge movie. And yes, I know it was directed by Ridley Scott. Well, that's that's a good start. This is a weird one. I actually know a lot about this movie, and I think the reason I haven't seen it is because it has never been on a popular streaming service that I like it may have been on Showtime or something. I'm not making that as a blanket statement. It maybe it was on Netflix before I subscribed to Netflix streaming, but 
I don't think it's I I don't think it has been available. I certainly would have watched it if it had been. I have a story behind the one time I tried to watch it. Do tell. So this is a movie I've completely avoided. Obviously, I understand it's a huge movie. I already know a lot about it. I know Harrison Ford is in it. Okay. I know that I'm po- almost positive that either Jennifer Jason Lee or Jennifer Lee Cook. Okay. Rachel Lee Cook. Uh-huh. One of the one of the one of the three named actresses that has Lee in it. So Jennifer Jason Lee or Rachel Lee Cook, I believe, is in it. Interesting choices. Okay. Um, and I know it's it was a huge movie for Ridley Scott. I'm pretty sure this is the one that put him on the put him on the map. Could be wrong. I mean, whatever. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But this is a movie that featured Harrison Ford, and he was already a bit of a star from Star Wars, and this this was like part of his rise to superstardom. Hmm. Um, is my understanding. So I worked for a company in the 2000s uh, that shall remain nameless. Okay. But they were a theater company that had a, an apartment in the in the same building that the theater was in. It was like a penthouse. And they had it up there for artists who were visiting to stay in. It was sort of like, hey, we can do your show and house you. It was kind of a smart business move. Mm-hmm. Randomly in the bedroom of this was a scattered amount of DVDs. And one day that I was there, either babysitting the theater, which meant I was just there to unlock the building and sit around at my desk and not do anything. Or one day I was like in between shifts. I wandered up to the to that and I thumbed through the DVDs and thought, oh, this is going to be my chance to watch Blade Runner. Yeah. It's here. It's probably the best movie in this collection. So why didn't you watch it? I put it on and immediately fell asleep. Uh. Probably because I had been awake all night the night before getting the show ready. Like any number of like, I don't typically fall asleep. I'm not Dan uh, from the Flophouse. I don't fall asleep a lot watching movies. Well, no, you've stumbled on it. This movie is actually notorious for inducing narcolepsy in otherwise healthy human men wait really yeah and it has no effect on women is that part of your background yeah it's it that's why uh this film has been banned in so many countries is because it actually causes a medical condition blade runner is okay now i know you're you're just fucking with me i am just that's that's of course that's classic dave deadpan but you got me again uh no i fell asleep and then i woke up and was like oh i guess i don't really have time to watch this now so i turned it off and never revisited it and i i when I, I will be honest when i say this i got none of this movie okay i don't have a, i don't remember a second of it all right well good i was out pretty much for like i hit play uh sat down on the bed and fell asleep yeah it's called the blade runner effect um, it's pretty famous i'm surprised you've never heard of it and then i guess because it is a movie from 1982 is perhaps just not something that anyone else has lobbied for me to watch well, that's what I want to ask about. No one has actually lobbied for you to watch this because this is one, this is going to fall into sort of the cult hit spectrum of this podcast's movie choices. But that being said, the people who are into this movie are super into this movie. And that group does like, its cult status has only grown over time. So like a lot of people think this movie is the cat's pajamas and are like, you got to watch Blade Runner. So you don't have any friends or, or teachers, like film professors, like, you know, at college being like, gotta, I'm assigning you Blade Runner. Write an essay on Blade Runner. You gotta watch Blade Runner. None of that? No. Honestly, My Dave, favorite movie is Blade Runner? Here's a big confession. I don't have many friends. 
I have you, and that's my very close. Those are the those are the people I've I've held close. So, oh my god, you know, you, you suddenly became the Pete Holmes podcast. <laughs> Was that uh, you made it weird? You made it weird. You just uh, made it super weird. No, I mean, I just don't have a lot. Like, I I guess out of my circle of friends, I don't have a ton that I enjoy media with regularly. I have a lot of friends. I'm kidding. If you're a friend of mine and who considers yourself a friend of mine and you're listening to this and you're now offended, I didn't list you. You have one fan. I, I apologize. Uh, no, I, I it honestly hasn't. I've always felt like I I've always been the snooty. So you've been the cinephile yes. in your circle usually. And I and I, for whatever reason, haven't gravitated towards this. And I do believe if this movie was on Netflix, I would have watched it. Okay. I think if it was at arm's length, because I've watched, I recently watched Repo Man. A Repo Men. Repo Men. Not Repo Man. Repo Men. A terrible movie. A movie that is absolutely a never. A movie. Al- also, to be clear, not Repo the Genetic Opera starring Giles from Buffy. No. Repo Men. Uh, Jude Law uh, sci fi movie directed by Miguel Sapochnik. Of Game of Thrones fame, yes. The only reason I watched it, I thought, well, his Game of Thrones episodes are great. Maybe this is like a hidden gem or something. Nope. It's awful. It's unwatched. It's like Dune bad. And Dune is... The- I, I feel like it's like, say what you will about Dune, it's bad in a very memorable way. Repo Men felt a little more generic to me. It's generic, but it is... I, I did enjoy, like, I I think, again, the cinephile in me was like, oh, I love how much Cronenberg this is, like, this is stealing so much from Cronenberg and Terry Gilliam and all these other, you know. It was nice to be mm-hmm. like, I know enough to know that this is just ripped off of other great filmmakers. No offense, mm-hmm. ma- the Game of Thrones episodes you've directed, Mr. Sapochnik, are top notch. Right. Well, anyway, going let's back. Let's get to it back because Blade so, Runner. We got. An, I, I don't want to give it away, Josh, but we have an awful lot to talk about around this movie. So I'm going to have to keep us on track a little more firmly than you can, normal. You can try. I'm. You know. I'm going to Elliot Kalen it up, but you can try. All right. Well, that usually is. You know, one of the. But I've already better jumped, points of that cast. I've so. already jumped ahead and said I know for a fact. Mm-hmm. You cannot deny this. Harry Ford. This is a Harry Ford flick. All right. Who else do you think is in it besides uh, Rachel Lee Cook? Christopher Plummer. Is that a real guess? Yes. Interesting. What, do you, what kind of character do you think he plays? I think that there's an older official type character. Okay. What do you think this movie's about? I believe that it is a sci-fi movie where Harrison Ford plays a detective who has to snuff out whether people are people or humanoid-like androids. And the crux of the plot is whether he is an actual android himself. Okay. And I believe this is based on a short story by... This has been really bothering me. I want to say J.G. Ballard, but I know that's not it. But... I refuse to do any Googling because I know I'm trying to I'm trying to go into this blind. Okay. But I know this is based on I believe it's based on a short story whose surtitle is Do Robots Dream of Electric Sheep? Or that might be the surtitle. It might be Blade Runner, parenthesis, Do Robots Dream of Electric Sheep? Okay. I'll tell you the actual answer to that in part two. Suspense, listeners. Dun, dun. Um, and don't Google it now, listeners, because you'll be fucking cheating. And we don't allow cheaters to listen to this podcast. So, Josh, I mean, I we've kind of circled around it talking about whether or not people have tried to get you to watch it already. But 
does the movie have a reputation in your eyes? Has anything yeah. told you what people think of it generally? I I don't know. No, Pete, I, you seem to be a fan of it. You were shocked I'd never seen it. Well, I think you no, said it was. I'm not shocked you've never seen it. I'm more shocked that no one has even ever tried to get you to see. I, it. I'm I'm convinced you told me it was a crime against humanity that I hadn't seen it. Uh, my fandom of this movie is not quite on that level. Okay. However, I do think it's an important film. I think my dad talked about it when I was a kid. I think he was a fan of it. Mm. Uh, because that's how I know. I think that's why I know the plot. Okay. And so you have no idea if this movie is considered, uh, apart from things I've said, whether it's considered good or bad or important. I've or... always assumed it was a huge success. Uh, I thought people loved it. Okay. I, my impression is that it's a well-received movie. Because it's Blade Runner, it's people talk about it, people reference it. It's, well, this is what I, this is exactly what I'm asking about. Like, what sort of perception do you have of it from the culture at large? I just, I guess it's one thing where it's not something that people are always alluding to in everyday conversation, but it does to me. If you're a sci-fi person, it's it's sort of I like people would probably call me a fraud for saying I'm into sci-fi movies and not having seen this one. I so I think this is like. Because it's early '80s, it landed in a in a it it was in the blinders of a lot of '90s people and niche, even though it wasn't niche for its era. Um. Okay. Well, uh, let me ask you this: Have you heard any quotes or lines that you think are from this movie? I knew you were gonna ask me that, and okay. I, and I've been racking my brain all week and really, really trying to think of it, and I've got two. All right. I'm pretty sure Harrison Ford is going to say, I'm getting too old for this shit. <laughs> okay. And then later in the movie, I think he's going to go, we're going to need a bigger boat. Okay. Obviously, no, I didn't think of any, I couldn't think of anything that I associate with this movie. And I, there's going to be a, and there, I know there's going to be one. And I'm so mad because I was like, what? There must be something. But I got my, my mind is, yeah, I got nothing. Let me ask you, so um, you were alluding to before that you said you were a, a big sci-fi fan. Yes. Uh, we know already that you're a big Terry Gilliam fan, and we know already that though you are a latecomer to it, you like Dune a lot, but what other- like The what novel, is... do not, do not even try to say I like the movie. I don't like Doom, the movie Dune. I was there, I know. Um, yes. <laughs> but uh, like, what would you say your taste is as far as sci-fi goes? Because, uh, you know, there's a lot of different versions of sci-fi. I like stuff like Total Recall. That I like stuff like the reason I'm drawn to Terry Gilliam's work is it's sort of ambiguous. You have to do a lot of work uh, yourself. Uh, I think that you know anything that has good visual effects but blends them kind of seamlessly. Like I like stuff that is futuristic but could be present day. Huh. And I and I, I think a lot of that partially stems from this movie. I think this is one of the movies that helps set the standard for that style of movie making uh tell me more about that like what do you think this film's gonna look like well the thing is it's my understanding of it is it's a, is that it's a world it posits a world where androids are among us but they are humanoid so you don't know if someone is a robot or not so if you're gonna if you're gonna have that type of movie what i'm expecting is like harrison ford walks into a cantina style bar and orders a futuristic drink and then slices the guy next to him and his arm is actually like all robotic like stuff like oh uh, i kind of just described star wars I, I i didn't mean to describe star wars but 
st- you know what I'm saying. It's like a f- the we know it's futuristic because of the atmosphere and the settings, but it's everyday. It's the everyday drones. Like humans are still just doing their everyday grind as if it's the same kind of environment as today. Yeah, but just keeping it focused specifically on the visual look of the film, do you have any other expectations? Dark, gritty, smoky, uh, low-lit... I mean, you must have seen, like, neon posters and things where you're getting this from, right? Yeah, I I think there's a culture... Like, again, I think this movie... You talk about a lot... uh, This happens a lot in the podcast where... It's the movie that I think created a genre or was influential in a genre. Mm-hmm. So I've seen a lot of other sci-fi that attributes its its look or aesthetic to not specifically this movie, but to this movie, this era of movies. Okay. Okay, cool. Um, also, I was going to say sci-fi, I was debating this in my head because sci-fi is like, it seems like sci-fi, maybe to us, we consider it a non-blockbuster. But I think in the 80s, sci-fi was still, like, because of Star Wars, because of movies from the 60s, studios invested in sci-fi because it was cheap to make. And it could pay off really well at the box office. Because humans were still at that phase of, like, we're going to land on the moon. We're going to have hoverboards in 50 years. Like, people are still very interested in sci-fi concepts, but they could be made very cheaply. So I, I think that... This movie came out at a time where sci-fi was in vogue, so to speak. And I think it fell out of vogue for a bit. Maybe. I mean, if I was thinking about how I envision the way sci-fi is treated, I think it's considered something where it could conceivably result in a blockbuster. But um, you might be right. Like, you know, at least until recently when, like, you know, Star Trek got a little more mainstreamed and the Marvel movies brought comics uh, more mainstream, like prior to that, you know, Lord of the Rings too for fantasy. But like the idea is that like sci-fi is nerd shit. Yeah. And mainstream audiences might not be fully into it. But also I feel like it's less that they can be financially successful and more that sci-fi is kind of critically ghettoized, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, a movie like Blade Runner or Star Wars, or, you know, uh, The Matrix. I mean, The Matrix got some critical love, at least for the effects, but, like, you're not going to see people winning, like, acting awards in a sci-fi film. Right. You know, people just don't give it very much respect critically. Yeah. and I, Or at and least, you know, I mean, you know, certain critics obviously have their heads on straight, but... There, um, there was a lull... The from, awards people. There was a lull from, say, 92 to 99, 2000, between The Matrix and maybe Terminator 2, where sci-fi movies, I think, consistently underperformed both critically and at the box office. You don't think there were maybe any other sci-fi movies that came out in 1992 that could have been big? Uh, no, I'm sure there are. I, I'm sorry I'm not reaching immediately for one. But That's fine. We'll talk about I'm it. I'm thinking specifically like Stargate, which was... I loved Stargate. So I love Stargate too, but I think we were probably in the minority. Like I don't think that was a successful movie. No, I made money. Uh, okay. I mean, people don't watch it now. You know who directed it? Oh, God, Ridley Scott. Roland Emmerich. Oh, yeah. Oh, Independence Day. Is that what you're thinking of, 92? No, no. Don't don't worry. We'll circle back to that. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Catchphrase of the pod. Maybe I'm wrong about my sci-fi take, but I do do feel like, uh, yeah, I don't know. If I have a sense of, like, sci-fi was in vogue and then out of vogue. Well, all right. We've been talking for 20 minutes, rapsing, waxing rhapsodic about the merits of sci-fi and certain types of 
sci-fi shit. Okay, but, um, can I say one thing though about my predictions for this movie? Please do. Steampunk noir aesthetic. Okay. I like that. When you're asking about what I expect visually, I think that's maybe the best way to articulate it. Cool. Okay, well, I think we're getting to the point where we're about ready to watch this beast, but um, before we actually watch it... How how long is this? You keep calling it a beast. Well, it's two hours, give or take. Uh, It's really Blade Runner 2 is the, like, three-hour one. Oh, boy. But, uh, you know, it's it's a relatively long one. Oh, yeah, is Ryan Gosling in this one? Yeah, as a little kid. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's crazy. No, he's not in this. Okay. I uh, figured. Um, what I wanted to say is that uh, I want to let people know what version of Blade Runner we're going to be watching. So you may or may not have known, Josh, there are seven versions of this movie out there in some form or another. We are going to be watching the quote unquote final cut Wait. version of Blade Runner. All right. But- fine what seven yeah like, there, there 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 are multiple versions that you could be watching and if you really like tried to find everything there there are seven different cuts so there's theatrical cut there's the theatrical cut which for the record is the version of this movie that i have seen okay there's the director's cut which came out in 1992 <laughs> which um uh ironically is not the version that Ridley Scott had the most control over as uh, artistically. Then how they call it the director's cut. Because that's what they called it. Okay. And then the version that Ridley Scott did have the most artistic say over is the one we're about to watch called the final cut. And then in between there's like the TV cut, the European, the, the foreign audience cut. And, and also like the, there's the, uh, the, the like original, like audience test cut, yeah. and, like et cetera cut. Okay. I see how you can get to seven. Yeah. Pretty easily. And so I was initially thinking that we should watch the theatrical cut just because that's the version that was released in theaters. And that's the version that I've seen before, but I ultimately went with final cut. Why? Because that's the version they had at the library. That makes sense. I mean, I don't want to see the shit cut. Well, there are virtues and drawbacks to both. And you haven't seen this one, so you don't know if it's better or worse than the theatrical one. I cannot say for sure. Interesting. So we got a little BLTN twist. Indeed we do. I'm gonna so I'll be asking you at the end of this podcast, was <laughs> was the final cut better late than never? Yes, you will. Alright, cool. Alright. Uh, yeah, so, with no further ado, let's watch Blade Runner. Blade Runner, robots in disguise. This is the part where we're watching the movie, and now it's done. And so, Josh, that was Blade Runner. Wow, sweet. Yeah, well, so. it was quite good. I don't know what was different from the theatrical cut, but I guess we'll talk about that and more on this second half of Better Late Than Never. Do, 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 do. Yes. So, okay. Because of the nature of this film, there's actually- Dave, I'm going to let you finish. But first, I'd like to say something. Please do. You always interrupt me at the start of these part twos, and I decided to interrupt you for once. I really liked that movie. End of story. Well, right on. (laughs) I thought you would, actually. 
And I mean, given a lot of things you were saying in part one, I think that became increasingly clear that you were likely to enjoy this film. Yeah. Well, a lot of my predictions were sort of true. I, some of them. I mean, some of them were very wrong. Yeah, we'll get to that catchphrase of the pod. But um, let's start by doing a little bit of background. And as I was saying before, I was so rudely interrupted, Josh, is that um, uh, there's a lot more written about this movie than most others. And researching this took fucking forever. There's an awful lot to talk about. I'll do what I can to you know, edit and keep things moving. But long story short, buckle up, buddy, because this is going to be a long one. Oh, I like background. It's my favorite part of the pod. Well, right on. The background of this movie is that it is based on a novel by Philip K. Dick. Oh, yes. That's who I was, man. Because he wrote a scanner darkly. Philip K. Dick has written a lot of sci-fi. He sure has. It was called do androids dream of electric sheep aha uh-huh. okay yeah my robots slightly wrong yeah completely fucking wrong that was pretty close you idiots i was very close listener yeah he uh he wrote the source material that it's based off of he did pass away before the movie came out but he did see a lot of the early production work he got a chance to kind of see i think even maybe a rough cut of it or okay. at least of some of the like the previs i don't know but um, he was really happy with it. He said, uh, I recognized it immediately. It was my own interior world. They caught it perfectly. I mean, it's quite distinct. And oh, yeah. we'll talk about the art direction and the direction of it. But we talked, we've talked about how like you can see Cronenberg's thumbprint or Terry Gilliam's thumbprint on other stuff. But what I loved about it was obviously Ridley Scott's thumbprint is all over their stuff because there's a lot of... Uh, this world building that is done very vividly and very beautifully. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's what the movie's known for. And who, and the screen play was adapted by two people, one of whom I didn't recognize at all, but another David Peoples of David and Janet Peoples fame who penned 12 monkeys. That is correct. So the screenplay was adapted by a man named Hampton Fancher and then after him, uh, it was given to David Peoples of 12 Monkeys fame from an earlier pod. Ah, so they didn't collaborate. It was passed on. Right. It was one to the other. And I think there are a couple of points, too, um, where other critics I've listened to have felt like the characterization shows maybe a little bit of inconsistency. And they speculate that it was maybe one person's vision for the character and then the other person's, you know, we can talk about that Interesting. when it comes up. But um. Yeah, so uh, the movie was bouncing around for a while. Uh, Ridley Scott was interested in it, but then had to go off and work on other films like Alien and briefly Dune for a while. But then he became free and came back to it. Um, The idea was to design a world, quote, where progress and decay exist hand in hand. That was the vision for the production design on this film. Okay. Also... I mean, so you're talking about, you know, Ridley Scott's fingerprints as a, as a director. He is very much a visual stylist, especially in this movie, I think you can safely say. He really loves uh, pyramids and giant tome buildings. I would also say that another hallmark of his uh, shooting style is that there tends to be an awful lot of particulate matter in the air. Oh, yes. A lot of dust, a lot of... Feather, you know, just like stuff floating in the air. I wanted to call attention to the fact that they smoke 
cigarettes in this movie. A few characters smoke cigarettes, but the cigarettes are like blunts. They're so huge. And I wondered, is that because they weren't getting enough smoke out of regular cigarettes for Ridley's liking? So they had to roll giant like joint like cigarettes to get it to show up on film. Given what I'm about to tell you, that is an entirely plausible theory. So here's the thing about Ridley Scott. So, you know, a lot of directors are uh, I was reading about this. uh, Someone put it that a lot of directors are hyphenates. So they're actor directors or writer directors. Ridley Scott is someone who began his career as a production designer so he is very uniquely kind of a production designer dash director. Sure. And that really, really shows. Uh, he always puts a lot into the production design. And that was particularly the case on this movie. Uh, to the point, in fact, where this film was actually kind of a famously troubled production, partially because of how much attention to the production design Ridley Scott was paying. Yeah, I'm not surprised because it looks phenomenal. Oh, it, it absolutely does. So... Talking about that, uh, the visuals of this movie were inspired by a, a whole slew of different things, but among them were um, the movie Metropolis, the Fritz Lang movie, mm. uh, the actual literal city of Hong Kong. Yeah. And then also um, the Edward Hopper painting Nighthawks. Are you familiar with that one? Is that the, that's not the diner, is it? Yeah. The one where you're yes. seeing it from outside through the yes. huge glass window. Yeah. That. And I think you can see that. Yeah, Definitely. I mean, it's got a. It's very noirish as a painting. It is. It's like the. It's like if you I mean, it is interesting because it really was an '80s view of what 2019. My favorite part was when it said it was Los Angeles 2019. That's right. It takes place today. And I was like, it's today. <laughs> it's today. They never thought it would come, but it did, and we're here to tell you, uh, listener. Uh, Ridley Scott did not get it correct. Uh, His vision for this movie visually was this was not a science fiction film so much as a period piece, but it would be 40 years from now, not 40 years ago. Sure. And you kind of see that, right? Where it kind of has this is retro futurist the right word. It's it's more sort of like it's this vision of a future world, but from the point of view where it's actually crap, it's old and broken yeah and this it was it was very so you got a lot of the stuff that we saw in the fly with uh 80s rom computers being used in offices and things like that uh you got flying cars you've got hovercrafts with advertisements on them everywhere yeah the the uh the zeppelin the zeppelin i mean it 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 was not an implausible it, yeah, it's the type of thing that we wa- I watch now and think, oh yeah, I could see that happening. I mean, it's, oh, totally. it's not an implausible view of what how technology can progress. In fact, early on, there's a shot of Harrison Ford in the police car looking down at like a scroll pad, and I was like, if you you could easily take away from this that he's looking at an iPhone, like scrolling an iPhone, sure. I think he was supposed to be looking at like reviewing a data pad of like information about uh, the Nexus sixes that escaped. But and you'll find out what the Nexus sixes are if you don't know very soon. But yeah, uh, well, speaking of the police car, so the that model was called a spinner. It was designed by this guy, Sid Mead, who was an industrial slash neo-futurist designer. He worked on a bunch of other pretty iconic stuff like the both the first two aliens films mm-hmm. and Tron the spinner car 
uh, one of the models is on permanent exhibit at the Science Fiction Museum and Hall of Fame in Seattle, Washington. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, the future cars, I was re- very impressed by the shot of the one lifting off uh, when the first time he gets picked up by Edward James Olmos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Spo- who, spoiler alert, is in this film, unlike Christopher Plummer. Yeah, not quite right on that one. But um, I have a question for you, Josh. Do you know why the movie's called Blade Runner? Uh, well... I would assume because that's the title given to the detective agents who are charged with finding and executing or retiring rogue replicants. But why? Um, fuck if I know. So Fancher, the writer, he took the name from the title of a William S. Burroughs script that was itself adapting a different book by this guy named Alan Norse who was a, a doctor slash sci-fi writer. And so that guy, Norse, wrote this book called The Blade Runner. And it was set in the distant future of 2009. And in this future, um, the world is super overpopulated and it's really crappy. And there's this terrible totalitarian government which has established this rule where um, no one gets any medical treatment unless they submit to being sterilized. And this lets the government kind of cull the sick and the weak and the injured unless they meet what the government considers to be the definition of, you know, ideal to pass on their genes, right? Mm -hmm. And so within this horrible system, doctors have set up this black market where they have people running for them who are called Blade Runners because those are people who go out and get them like black market scalpels amongst other hospital equipment. So it's called Blade Runner because he stole it from another (laughs) property basically yeah basically well i mean they got permission to use the name okay uh basically like uh fancher saw the word liked it put it in his script ridley scott read it saw the word and was like i fucking love this we're making it the title of the movie i don't understand how it connects to harrison ford or being a a replicant detective it doesn't that's not dissimilar from the movie replicant which came out recently which is a keanu reeves movie well, doesn't he replicate people in that movie? Yes, he clones people. Yeah, so close enough. But I, I, when you asked me about the fra- famous phrases from the movie, I forgot replicant. I didn't. Know, I mean, I didn't know idea it was associated with this movie. Mm. But is that the word you were searching for? I mean, amongst others, because while we were watching the movie, and I apologize to Dave for this, we had to take several breaks during it. Uh, I have a medical issue involving a catheter. Fucking bullshit. I really messed up the couch uh future podcasts i apologize for the smell and the stains dude i'm throwing it away but uh i wanted during one of the pauses i went on twitter and uh pulled up a tweet from paul f Tompkins where he was retweeting an account and he said for the last time i am not a replicant and the account was like have you seen a turtle upside down before and you know i understand that joke now whereas before I would have had absolutely no context for it. That happened during the movie? During the movie, I screenshotted it. Weird. Yeah, very weird. All right. Well, um, hmm. Okay. I mean, it happened while we were watching the movie. Can you flip a coin and see if it comes up heads? Uh, sure. Yeah, no, no, it's fine. So like I said, this was a famously troubled production. To the point, in fact, where a lot of the people who were working at it took to calling it Blood Runner because of how hard it was to work on. Harrison Ford has called this his worst movie experience. Okay. Um, there were all kinds of things that went wrong, including uh, producers pulling out very suddenly that had to be replaced, et cetera, et cetera. But 
the the really big thing that gets pointed to for the troubled production is that uh, Ridley Scott was so insanely focused on the production design and the art direction that he was so um he he was just really really demanding on the production crew so like people would get fired for not getting things exactly right there would be effect shots where like he would take a shot that cost a quarter of a million dollars and say very cavalierly it didn't work as well as i thought it would i'm cutting it and so you know he was he was just basically a huge perfectionist and so it created a lot of problems on set, but at the same time, you know, the production design is really what this movie is famous for. So you wouldn't you know, know it looking at the final product that there was any issues. It, I think they, I think they did a, a very good job. Oh, absolutely. So I mean, you know, it, it paid off for you know the final artistic product. Although it doesn't sound like a film you would have had a great time working on. No, basically. and the, here's the strange thing: Hollywood and the theater community seem to love directors like this. Because I've I've worked with directors like this who, you know, you'll spend lots of money trying to execute something and they'll go, no, it didn't work the way I thought it would. It's not your fault. It's mine for thinking it would work to begin with and cut it cavalierly. And you're like, well, we just wasted half the production budget on this thing that's not even going to be seen by anyone. And those people are the ones who I've seen get elevated to the ranks of the system and are like now directing on Broadway. So I think maybe you're... I don't know. There's something to be said about some people who have big ideas and fight for them, even though studios will blacklist them in the Terry Gilliam sense in some way. Like Ridley Scott works a, like has had a lengthy career. So obviously this didn't do much to derail it. I guess he had the cachet too because of the success of Alien, but and amongst other films, I mean, like this is the type of thing where another director would never work again for making those mistakes. Yeah, yeah. Um you know, for me, I just would want to make sure that there, there's also that tendency to um, forgive all kinds of dictatorial and assholeish behavior on the part of someone just because they're such a brilliant artist. Yeah. So I do want to make sure that that impulse gets reined in a little bit. But yeah. you're also right that like sometimes someone just like has a really great vision and, you know, it's worth working hard to make it happen. You also have to assess the amount of times that that scenario occurs and they cavalierly throw it away or the versus the amount of times that scenario occurs and it's a success and people love it. So it's like, if it's one every 20 ideas that costs a lot of money that gets thrown out, fine. But if it's one out of five, you're like, what the, do you really know what you're doing? Yeah. Uh, but I would say it looks great, particularly uh, JF Sebastian's whole, everything about that world. The Bradbury building. It's amazing. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. Well, we'll get to that. But one last thing, too, is that another thing that was fought about behind the scenes is that when they finally had a uh, you know a a preliminary version to show to audiences some people in the audience found it a little confusing and hard to follow so the studio mandated that Ridley Scott make certain changes among them and this is for the theatrical version so this is not this is not the version of the film that you saw you saw Ridley Scott's pure vision what the studio insisted on for the theatrical version which is the version that i saw was they wanted the kind of the ending, I think, as you mentioned, when it finished is a little bit ambiguous and enigmatic. It's 100 percent ambiguous. It, it makes absolutely no sense. All right. Well, hey, we'll, we'll talk about it. Don't worry. Harf, harf, harf. But um, they insisted that they include a tacked on clear, happy ending that they had to go reshoot. And it's very like 
cheesy. I didn't need it to be happy. I just wanted to know more what the fuck was happening. I shouldn't curse so much because I'm... Well, to that end, Josh, they also insisted that Harrison Ford go and record a whole bunch of voiceover to explain certain things about the world he lived in. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, so um, this voiceover is uh, it's a part of the theatrical release and is a part of the version I watched. Uh, a lot of people don't like it. It is considered famously pretty bad. I will admit that when I watched the theatrical version, this is my first time seeing the final cut. I did like it better than the theatrical cut that I saw. That being said, the first time I saw the theatrical cut, I had heard, you know, all this shit about the voiceover. I didn't, it, it isn't great and it's better without it, but I didn't think it was so bad that it like ruined the movie. Also, the happy ending, I was kind of just like fine with, but I do think the film is improved by removing those things. Well, I would say it was one of my favorite parts of it was the quietness of it and the slowness of it and letting you figure it out Mm -hmm. because that was very noir. Yeah. Although, you know, voiceover is also very noir. Absolutely. Well, I could see it working, but you keep saying you've seen the theatrical version. But not in theaters, right? Correct. On video, like VHS? Yeah. Okay. Uh, How old were you when you saw it? Um, older. Like, I didn't get to this movie until I was in college, probably. Did you have a friend who was your, who was your in, did you have someone in college who convinced you to watch it? Or are you just like, what's what's on the shelf that we haven't all seen? I was, at that point in my life, kind of hitting the uh, pretentious budding cinephile phase of my life. And so, you know, reading all these other people who were professional critics and stuff talking about like, oh, well, of course, obviously, there's the incredibly important and influential masterpiece Blade Runner. You have to see Blade Runner. You're a fool if you've never seen Blade Runner. Mm -hmm. My favorite movie is Blade Runner. So I was like, okay, I'll check this out. And I do like the film. And in fact, uh, having seen this version now, I'd say I even like it more than I did the first time I saw it. But, you know, also because I guess I didn't see it at an earlier part of my life where it was more formative. I don't have quite the same um, attachments to it that I think some other people have. I also will go on record and say this is a masterpiece. I agree, but it's not a series of masterpiece performances. Uh, no, don't I, worry. I mean, we'll... We'll vi- talk about outside it. of the visuals the yeah i sir i when you said harrison ford called this his worst film i was gonna say harry i tend to agree with you there uh speaking of harrison ford and speaking of the voiceover i alluded to people thinking it's not very good i am now going to play for you some of the harrison ford voiceover from the theatrical cut are you ready ready okay they don't advertise for killers in a newspaper That was my profession, ex-cop, ex-blade runner, ex-killer. I'd quit because I'd had a belly full of killing, but then I'd rather be a killer than a victim. And that's exactly what Bryant's threat about little people meant. So I hooked in once more, thinking that if I couldn't take it, I'd split later. I didn't have to worry about Gaff. He was brown-nosing for a promotion, so he didn't want me back anyway. Whatever was in the bathtub was not human. Replicants don't have scales. 
Replicants weren't supposed to have feelings. Neither were Blade Runners. What the hell was happening to me? What do you think? Was he on heroin? Okay, so... Whether or not this is actually true is a matter of debate, but the speculation, or the chatter, is that Harrison Ford really didn't want to do the voiceover. And so when they forced him to, they dragged him into the booth, it was like, you know, you have to kind of situation... They the belief is that he deliberately tried to do such a bad job that they wouldn't use it. It's awful. It's terrible, right? It sounds super bad out of context. I could see it working. I mean, so, you know, again, when I watched it, you know, noirs have voiceover and, you know, it's got a bit of that hard boiled edge to it. But the thing about it is, is that his delivery is so flat and so lifeless that like it's not good. No, I don't think I honestly... Well, well, let me just get, move on. Okay. I'm going to talk about it. We'll talk about his performance too, but first let's talk about Ridley Scott. So um, what do you think of him as a director? Are you a fan? That's This movie had me thinking about how little, like how untapped I am into Ridley Scott's career. Okay, well, let's run through it. So uh, to answer your prediction a little bit from earlier, this is not actually the film that launched his career. Prior to this, he had made two films. The Duelists, which was well-received, and then, of course, Alien, which is actually the film that launched his star. Mega hit. Yeah. And then, of course, this movie was also well-received, but after this movie, um, some of the... I mean, you know... Do you know the films he's made? I'll run through... Legend. Yes, Legend. Also, um, Thelma and Louise, G.I. Jane, Gladiator, Hannibal, the bad movie, not the good show. I thought Hannibal was fine. It's not. I listened to you trash it on another podcast and it infuriated me. No, I was right too. Black Hawk Down, Matchstick Men. I like Matchstick Men. I remember, yeah, I forgot that was a Ridley Scott. I like it. I like it. Kingdom of Heaven, American Gangster, Robin Hood. Uh, that's the Kevin Costner one? No, the, the Russell Crowe one. Oh, I haven't seen that one. The Counselor with Michael Fassbender. We just got another Robin Hood. There's a Guy Ritchie Robin. How many Robin Hoods do we need? I mean, it's a classic story. I like the Errol Flynn one. I like the... Wait, the Errol Flynn... Uh, I, I like the Carrie Elwes one. There's a Carrie Elways one? Robin Hood Men in Tights. Oh, <laughs> right. Of course. Dave Chappelle. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Exodus, Gods and Kings. And then he's also gone back to the Alien Well doing Prometheus and Alien Covenant. The Martian... And your favorite movie, Josh, All the Money in the World. Which I actually have not seen. I have seen The Martian. I've seen a bunch of those. Uh, I mean, a lot of those are great films. Yeah, a couple of them are stinkers. Yeah, a couple of them, especially The Counselor. Holy shit. It's good that he can do big, giant, epic temple movies and sort of smaller movies like Matchstick Men. I like that. He's not like a Roland Emmerich who can only do giant movies. Oh, you didn't like his uh, Shakespeare movie? What? uh, Shakespeare in Love? Roland Emmerich did not direct Shakespeare in Love. Yeah, well, I don't know who did. No, he directed, what what was it called? He directed some movie about Shakespeare uh, that looked terrible. Will I Am? Yeah, that was it. Uh, Uh, No, I I think I would say on, on the whole, especially because when I was younger, I didn't think about directors. So Gladiator had a big impact on me when I saw it in theaters. Matchstick Men as well. So, yeah, I I guess I could say I've always been on board with Ridley Scott, even if I didn't really know it. But he's also not someone that I would 
after seeing this movie, I he's in a different realm. I always did consider him kind of a box office. Uh, he's a blockbuster director. Yeah. Yeah, I had that impression of him, too. A little bit more like James Cameron. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, fitting, too, in that they're the two people who made the uh, Alien franchise what it is. Yes, but he also works, has a much higher volume, and uh, works at a higher pace. Oh, yes, much more than so. Than James Cameron. Yeah. So, um, regarding his skills with actors, Russell Crowe says that he's a great actor's director, but it seems like that... Um, that reputation is more recent because, uh, you know, what I just said about how at Blade in Blade Runner, his focus was on the production and that caused problems that, you know, the actors felt like he wasn't giving them. Some of the actors felt like he wasn't giving them enough attention, whereas now his reputation is for being a pretty good actor's director, I guess, at least according to the shit I was reading, you know, a very open to suggestions and willing to let actors kind of take the lead on developing their own characters. Yeah, I mean, my issue with this movie and I'm not saying this to be down on it because I, I really, really liked it, but I didn't feel like any of the performances stood out. None of the performances. No, I found, I found them all to be fine. Whoa. Okay. Controversial, but we will work through it. Let me just finish by saying, as opposed to the actress thing, what he is really most known for is being a visual stylist. So, you know, his visual style uh, usually involves a lot of attention to the production design, uh, really good lighting, and um, he also tends to incorporate uh, female leads and heroines more than a lot of people. So, you know, you've got Ripley, you've got Thelma and Louise, G.I. Jane, uh, the Prometheus and Alien Covenant both had female leads, you yeah. know, so he's good about that. Also, he uh, he brings in AI a lot. Yes. So, you know, he likes to do that. Also, um ridley scott claims to have an eidetic memory what does that mean uh photographic memory oh yeah and uh he says that helps him when uh moving through the storyboarding to shooting process because he remembers it perfectly so it makes that a lot easier for him yeah i mean uh, supposedly actual eidetic memory is a myth yeah but uh you know whatever no that i mean that that does not sound like a real thing all right so Talking about how he is as an actor's director, let's segue into the actual actors. And it sounds like you got some opinions on the performances, so let's oh, start. I have some opinions. Let's start with Harrison Ford as Rick Deckard. Harrison Ford is known for being 100% in or checked out like lazy Bruce Willis. And I think he delivers a pretty boring performance in this. However... So much of his performance is simply walking through shots or running through shots or doing this or doing that. I don't think it takes away from the overall movie. In fact, sometimes I think his subtlety is okay for the role, but there's nothing particularly like I, I don't find anything memorable about his actual performance. I, I thought it was pretty wooden. Broadly speaking, I agree with you. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think he's fine in the lead role. Uh, I don't think I, I don't think he was checked out in making this. I think maybe the fact that his performance wasn't great had to do with his clashing with Ridley Scott, you know, and, you know, he complains about how Ridley Scott wasn't giving him enough direction and not being hands on enough. He may have also had a lot to think about because there's always doing something. There's always something other element other than like the, the spoken text. Right. Because uh, I think some of the times are most successful are kind of like the bar scene 
where we're just seeing him get he, we're just seeing, living in the scene yeah talks yeah. to the guy has a few drinks drunk dials rachel you know in fact his liveliest scene is when he's pretending to be the arts agent or whatever and that is a very questionable and it's a weird it's a, i liked it. it was so goofball like it's a side of harrison ford that he kind of hid i think for a very long time uh he didn't he didn't do a lot of he like he used to be show up on conan and be and be so funny and so like loose and whatever and you'd be like i've never seen this portrayed on film yeah <laughs> but it's there and this is a little bit of it oh man and it also i mean he has a very specific conception of what a nerd is i guess yeah uh and i i mean i so i would say uh, harrison ford you know excellent actor uh i would rather see rucker Hauer in his role i think oh, that would have no, made rucker Hauer was fine where he was uh well you know big to differ but well hold that thought um so a little bit of stuff originally up for this role was dustin hoffman yeah you can see it much better uh, does he have the physical presence? So uh, maybe Harrison Ford is acting wooden because we are supposed to be questioning whether he himself is a replicant, right? Could be. And maybe that's what it is. But I think Dustin Hop, you don't get any sign of that internal struggle. He's so, he so quiet, like downplays everything. So I think Dustin Hoffman would show some real emotional struggle or depth. You just don't get from Ford. Yeah. And I mean, look, Dustin Hoffman is one of the greatest actors of our times, so I'm not ragging on what he could have brought. I'm just saying he's not as big as Harrison Ford, so it would have been visually a very different performance. Sure. If you look at the outer, the larger body of work of Harrison Ford, the movie seems made. Star Wars, the Indiana Jones franchise, The Fugitive. They're all like action movies where he fires off quips or like on the lamb from Justice. You know, they're not like meaty he's done very few meaty small acting movies that you've seen regarding henry i haven't but i bet that's his best acting i bet that's his best performance and that's like the very start you know the very beginning of his career it's not his best performance oof what would you say his best performance is last last crusade uh i mean i do like that movie very much uh i think han solo is great yeah i love the fugitive um i'm trying to disentangle my feelings about those movies and characters from like what i actually think is his best just straight up performance i'll have to get back to you probably one of those i mean he doesn't it's it's like he does a lot of brooding and he doesn't necessarily do brooding well is my basic take Hmm. all right well anywho he clashed with ridley scott a lot in this film uh ridley scott was once asked who's the biggest pain in the arse you've ever worked with? And he said, it's got to be Harrison. He'll forgive me because now I get on with him. Now he's become charming. But that's their answer. They're cool and now, Ridley, but they fought a lot of the Ridley time. Ridley is British, right? Yeah. Yeah, Ridley Scott is, just seems so British. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about Sean Young as Rachel. I actually would say she was great. So I take back my mediocre comment. It's just her performance is so... Uh, understated that i like almost forgot she was there well it's understated but like she brings the perfect amount of like uh inhumanness to it like it's not too much it's just the perfect amount yeah okay and so i think she's fantastic in this i'll, I'll if you know you, you're obviously not going to be able to edit out what i said because i've said it so many times now but i yeah she's the standout she's the standout for me okay um, and uh, just to mention to Josh, you would recognize Sean Young as being Chani from your favorite film, Dune. Yeah, she's a lot better in this. 
Yes, she is. She's also uh, Finkel is Einhorn. Oh, really? Yeah. All right. So let's talk about who is actually giving the best performance in this film. Josh. And that's Rutger Hauer. Rutger Hauer as Roy Batty. Uh, Yeah, he was good. Holy shit. He's good. You're going to get hate mail. I don't know. I honestly was trying to think of another Rucker Hauer uh, performance. You said this is what he's known for, but I think there's there's more. I mean, isn't he a villain in like an Under Siege 3 or something like that? Under Siege 3? Oh, there's like 20 Under Sieges. I, I, I mean, look, he's in like The Hitcher, that, that horror movie. Okay. Sin City. Yes, Sin City is what I would remember Rucker Hauer from. Sin City over this uh yeah sin city is actually in some ways a better noir movie than than this one you are cruising for a and and like a more interesting visually like it's it's sort of like if you did this and then and that if this movie and uh tarantino and kill bill had a baby are you being sarcastic no what what's wrong with my what why is that a bad take i just I mean, look, it's your take, and God bless you for having it. I just don't agree. I give Rucker Hauer... And I like Sin City a lot. This is not a put-down. I don't have the same kind of, like, issue that I had with Harrison Ford. He didn't sleep through the role. No, he's so soulful and, like, charismatic. In a role that's supposed to be soulless. He's a robot. He's an android. No, but that's the whole thing, is that they, they are evolving. He's he's designed to be soulless, but because they were designed so well, they've developed humanity. Man, I'm I'm really going to sell myself out as not being the buff that I wish I was. But I would say I would point you to Terminator 2 and Aliens as two movies with actors that do better uh, AI performances. I'm not talking about Arnold. I'm talking about the 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 T-1000 robert patrick yeah robert patrick and then uh who's the uh the guy from uh lance henriksen yeah look i mean i adore lance henriksen especially in that role and i like robert patrick as a t-1002 but like you still think Hauer, rucker Hauer? yeah and i mean this this performance is considered pretty iconic and i would say in this case rightly so i just i think it's such a a great job maybe if the last act of the movie made more sense i would uh all right well then I let's would, let's I see would, how you feel after we feel talk through that part but first let's talk about daryl hannah as pris actually uh i kind of enjoyed her performance too yeah i, I don't know why. i mean i was kind of i i would say that again the acting on as as an ensemble never really clicked uh Maybe that's a maybe I attribute that to Harrison's. I mean, it sounds to me more like you just didn't care for Harrison Ford's performance. Yeah, I'm wondering if it's more because so many of the scenes are him interacting with each of the actors individually. And there's a lot I guess there's a lot of Daryl Hannah, Rucker Hauer and uh, the gentleman who plays uh, J.F. Sebastian. But well, anyway, um, I think she's great, too. Uh, The thing I like about this performance is that uh, obviously she's very. you know attractive and sexy and like she's a pleasure bot so she's designed to be that way and come off that way but underneath it all there's a lot of you know kind of genuine warmth and also vulnerability to her yeah she's childlike yeah and it's uh, charming yeah exactly yeah nailed it I, and, and and again maybe i mean i do think for as much of the universe building as uh ridley scott did visually he didn't build enough of a st- like the story is is uh 
it's not me i don't know well it's a slow moving film there's not a lot of plot but it's by design right it's to be atmospheric so i'm very i'm having a lot of conflict internally because i loved a lot of that i just wish that it had developed into something and i don't feel like it ever did Hmm. all right but but again that's not like a general assessment but it made me think less highly of the individual performances the individual scenes well uh, i'm not sure what it amounted to okay well hang on to that keep going through keep going through characters i loved mm at walsh is he up next uh to start with yes mm at walsh as police chief bryant pretty fine yeah he's good um edward james almost as gaff good uh i mean it was great to see him show up on screen he looked great when he was younger not really sure this role wasn't really sure the point of this role oh uh, i i think he's critical Okay. But we'll talk about that. Uh, one thing, too. So the way Harrison Ford complained about Ridley Scott not having enough of a hands-on mentality, Edward James almost actually favored that. He said that he had the freedom to come up with that uh, polyglot newspeak that he uses, the street slang t- uh, dialect yeah. that he employs. He was able to come up with that on his own, and uh-huh. he appreciated having that freedom. Did he uh, decide to take little pieces of tissue paper and roll them up into animals? Was that his choice as well? No, the origami is uh, part of the part of it. Okay, we'll talk about that. But uh, lastly, William Sanderson as J.F. Sebastian. I, I actually thought he was fine too. I just liked his his world more. Yeah, he's great. So let's go through the plot a little bit. So the movie begins, and immediately right off the bat, we get that pretty dope music. What did you think of the soundtrack of this? The synth soundtrack was cool yeah i liked it i like i also love movies that start with rolling text i think find that movies that start with rolling text then just drop you into the universe and i like being i like as a movie viewer getting to like feel it out myself and getting to like because it makes me pay attention more and more actively engaged than something that is just spouting exposition at me so you don't want to have your hand held basically yeah which is you're gonna be like well you complained about not understanding this movie so that doesn't make a lot of sense but i liked the scrolling text because it delivered some very like interesting exposition including the fact that it's 2019 2019 that there are androids humanoid androids called replicants there they were created as slaves to work on other planets but they rebelled and killed humans so they're now illegal on earth if they are ever spotted you're supposed to uh, tip them off to the police who tip off a Blade Runner who's supposed to retire, aka kill them on site. And they are a product of the Tyrell Corporation. Yeah, which is like the big future conglomerate corporation that just seems to own everything. Yeah, how's Tyrell? Uh, yeah. We didn't talk about that actor. Who was that? Oh, um, yeah, I left him out just because I wanted to save time. But I that think that's is, who um, I had in mind is like Christopher Plummer. His name's Joe Turkle. I don't actually recognize him from anything else. Is he related to Studs Turkle? I'm sure he is. Actually, okay. he. That, I think that's just an alias for Studs Turkle. Really? He is Studs Turkle. No, you're just you're just joshing me. Maybe. Um, yeah, but anyway, so every time I heard uh, Tyrell in Game of Thrones, I kept yeah. thinking of Blade Runner. Yeah, so anyway... We get the movie starting in all this amazing production design and soundscape. This movie looks great on Blu-ray, by the way. Yeah. We get the spinners, the flying cop cars, and the, you know, the gorgeous cityscapes and all that. It looks great. Also, um, so the future is different because there was some ecological disasters. And you really know there's been a terrible ecological disaster because it's constantly raining in Los Angeles. Uh, yeah, and... 
I mean, my God, what happened? <laughs> also, there's like a whole thing where Western civilization has been sort of Easternized. Like, they're, like Chinatown is now all of L.A. Right. Well, I I think you know there are other things, other uh, properties that have had that vision of the future where um, it's it's like a more blended polyglot cosmopolitan society so like you think about uh did you ever watch firefly yeah western but with strong eastern influences an idea sure. that like you know america and china kind of like together culturally led the way yeah and guess, this definitely has that yeah guess what didn't happen spoiler alert didn't happen not yet but 2019 is still young gosh <laughs> maybe this this movie takes place in december of 2019 that's why it's raining so much in la right right so uh yeah so we get introduced to harrison ford uh De- decker Deckard. I, well, some people seem to say Decker. Some people definitely said Deckard. It has a D. Um, before that, even though, we get introduced to a Blade Runner who is going to run oh, God. the Voight yeah. Kampf test on somebody. This was a great scene. This was Leon, one yeah. of our, our skin jobs, who uh, fails or is failing the test, but then uh, decides to tell the Blade Runner about his mother and shoots him dead. But it's a good introduction. Yeah, and the Blade Runner's name is Holden. Ah, well, whatever, he's dead. But the point is, though, uh, that I wanted to make that um, the movie, I think, is improved by not having the voiceover because I was liking it more this time that you were just being dropped into the world and forced to figure it out for yourself a little bit more. I did like that better. I and and the thing is it it you don't I mean not necessarily calling myself a smart viewer but I understood what was happening. It was pretty clear I was watching yeah, a guy yeah, yeah. a person feeling out another person for how human they are. You could tell from Leon that the actor who played Leon was quite good. That was um Brian James, okay. who I also don't know very well, but he is good in this, yes. Um so anyway, then we meet Deckard who uh Gaff comes and picks him up. And he's brought to the police station where M.M. Walsh tells him that they need to catch four skin jobs. And by the way, you were a fan of Battlestar Galactica? Yes. Word skin job mean anything yes, to you? Yes. Yes. Yeah. From this. Also, doesn't he, isn't he trying to order four shots of alcohol and the guy will only give him two? Oh, uh, I don't remember. I thought it was more about what he had to pay or something like uh, that. Okay, uh, maybe that whatever. was it. Um, there is uh, frequently communication problems, though. There is a little bit of uh, indicating that he's an alcoholic. I think there's plenty to suggest yeah. that, yeah. Uh, not the only one, even. But, but he uh, rolls into, so he gets pulled into the chief, basically the police chief's office, who immediately pours two shots for him. Yeah, who he knows. He knows what he likes. Yeah. Right, so uh, he needs to catch four skin jobs. Uh, there's Leon, there's Zora, Pris, and Roy Batty. And these are four uh, replicants that have have killed a bunch of humans and escaped on a ship. Now, weirdly, they've decided to return to Earth, which Harris of Ward questions. Well, but there's a reason, and we'll find out about that soon. Sure. They they need Harrison Ford, the retired Deckard, to come back because he's the best. He's, yes, he's the best Blade Runner. But here's the thing. You watch the movie. Does he seem like the best to you? He actually kind of sucks at his job. Uh, there, yeah, he's, well, I, so there's an, there's a, there's. Oh, oh, okay. Here's, he's fine. Here's my examples. Zora. Uh, oh, also, there's an argument that there's sort of a continuity error because there's a question. So there's the two female replicants. There's Pris, the uh, prostitute bot, and Zora, the uh, stealth assassin bot. Zora, the assassin, is working as a stripper and then runs away when put in a position to either kill or run. And then there's Pris, who's the sex bot, who winds up pulling out all these gymnastic ninja skills and beating the shit out of Deckard. Well, yeah. 
Yeah, so it, did that get flipped, or like is that just a like weird way the movie worked out? I don't know. But uh, Deckard, so Zora sees right through his like stupid nerd voice, gets the drop well, on him, and gets away. Okay, he shoots her in the back like a fucking coward. Then Leon beats the shit out of him, and he's only saved by Rachel. He only kills Pris after she gets the drop on him and beats his ass for a while. He winds up getting his ass handed to him by Roy Batty at the end and only survives because Batty chooses not to kill him. And then, of course, the ultimate sin for a Blade Runner, he falls in love with his prey. Yeah, I mean, but the listener's not going to understand any of that unless they've seen the movie. I know, but I'm just saying it as a as a pointing out that, like, he's not actually great at being a Blade Runner, I thought is he? It, I thought it was really sloppy that when he thought he had uh, honed in on her at the, at the nightclub, why he didn't immediately just roll in and cap her, right? Like, why did he? But why was he bothering snooping around her space at all? Maybe he wanted to use her to lead him to the others. Uh, yeah, I just he felt sloppy. At well, the, at the very best, he was. You know sloppy. what's sloppy is that his nerd voice just disappears. Yeah, he's like, he's like, wow. Okay, so I, I don't want to get. I, I want to try to go chronologic though, if we can. Okay, so, so he gets fine. put on the assignment. He, he gets put on the case, but here's the point too, where I want to introduce the one of the central questions of this movie, which is: Is Deckard a replicant? How, well, well, do you have yeah. a feeling on that yet? Uh, I, I'm. I think this is what I remember my dad discussing, but I'm. I think he is. Okay. That's the only explanation as to why he would fall in love with Rachel. Interesting. Okay. Well, we'll talk about it more, but this is the point in the movie that uh, I started uh, first having questions about that. So this is where we'll come back when we have that conversation. So he takes his first uh, investigative visit to the Tyrell Corporation. Yeah. Does he like the owl? There's the mechanical owl. And then that's immediately followed by the mechanical girl and he meets Rachel. Yeah. And he decides to put her through the Turing test or whatever they call it. Yeah, the Voight-Kampf test. The Voight-Kampf test. And it turns out she's a really advanced replicant. Because it takes a hundred questions for him to finally trip her systems up and reveal she's a replicant. Normally it takes 20 or 30. Yeah. Well, the advantage that she has is that she's been given artificial memories correct which makes her more human and in fact more human than human and the motto of the tyrell corporation we get we get introduced to tyrell who's just kind of he's not too villainous he's sort of a kindly walt disney type well yes but there's also something deeply sinister about him don't you think uh he owns an owl no um i'll bring it up when it comes up in the movie okay so um he meets Rachel and they go through the test and this, then he goes to the, he goes to check out the apartment that Leon mentions he was staying at to the other Blade Runner Holden. Right. And he finds a series of photographs at it. Yeah. Which uh, Roy Batty notes were very precious to Leon. Yeah. And while he's there, he notices some blood and other remnants in the tub and he finds a scale. Yeah. Uh, which I thought it was a piece of glass. I honestly, for a long time, was... Well, we don't know what it is at first. He just finds something. He puts it in a plastic bag. He leaves the the scene with the photographs, and then we find that Leon and we're first introduced to Roy. Yeah. Uh, who is like, did you get your precious photographs? Kind of condescendingly. Mm. And Leon's like, no. So Le Leon's interesting because he seems like not particularly advanced. He's no, the well, most robotic of them all. Well, he's dumb. So yeah. like, you know, Roy is the most advanced because he's like the super soldier model. 
so he's got the most cognition and the most physical gifts. Leon is just designed to be a worker bee, so he's strong and has like a lot of stamina, but he's not designed to be very smart. Got it. Uh, so we see them interact. They go to the, uh, I might be, I'm not sure if I have this chronologically perfect, but they essentially go to the, uh, studio of a man who constructs eyeballs for the replicants. Right. And they rough him up. Well, they murder him. I mean, they do more than rough him up. He's in a cold, he's doing this all in a freezer for some reason, not explained. Probably biological reason for that. And he wears a heavy coat that has tubes connected to it that are presumably warming him. Mm-hmm. And they basically rip the tubes apart and freeze him to death. Yeah, it's pretty he cool. He does give them the snippet of information that they need to check in with a man named J.F. Sebastian. And here's the, re- then we get the motivation of, of the replicants, is they are trying to determine their expiration date we learned that replicants can only live four years yeah it's a fail safe in case they rebel which you know four years feels like enough time to rebel yeah but you know it's you know it also takes them time to like evolve to the point where they would consider it too okay although less time if they're advanced like rachel or roy right Right. yeah so um let me see yeah so here we meet pris who is the one deployed to kind of get in with J.F. Sebastian, yeah. who we meet here. And he's he's so nice. He's nice, but his house is creepy. As fuck. Now, he li- he is a man who's devo- who creates uh, bots, he, he builds robots, and in his spare time, he seems like, you know, so he has this aging disease, Methuselah syndrome. Yeah. So he's only 25. He looks 50. Sure. You know, and... Um, he, you know, uh, presumably this makes him very shy and introverted, but he builds friends for himself, which is deeply sad, but also like very adore. You know, it just it's it, he seems like such a, a kind, lonely soul. But we got a lot talk, a lot of mileage talking about the creepiness of Jeff Goldblum's quote lab unquote in the fly. His quote studio unquote is even creepier okay yes you have to take like an abandoned i mean the whole building looks abandoned i was like is this even abandoned it yeah i but i mean but he's like the premier robot engineer so he has what he has all this money and he uses it to buy this is an incredibly economically stratified society so you've got like basically five people in the world who are ultra mega billion trillionaires like tyrell who lives in a like a pharaoh in a fucking pyramid and then you've got everybody else who lives on the dirty, filthy, shitty, rainy streets of, you know, this ecologically devastated world. And it sucks. Or in a hotel. Or in an abandoned hotel. Like, even this, like, incredibly intelligent, valuable member of society who presumably has very expensive skills, he lives in an abandoned hotel. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so he, he, and she, uh, so he meets Pris. She basically says, help, help. I'm a, I'm a poor, lonely or homeless person. And he's like, well, so am I. I'm very lonely. Yeah. Come on in. Yeah. He's so guileless. You get, you know, we, we don't quite know that she's connected to, I don't think we know for sure she's a replicant unless we were smart enough to track her from the photo. Yeah. But I think it's pretty clear. Yeah. I mean, you know, presumably we know it's Daryl Hannah too. Yeah. So yeah, right. Um, I also just you're talking about how creepy his house is like his place and Deckard's place. Everyone's living space is so fucking dark in this society. And I know it's meant to be about how like crappy it is. And it's a noirish like stylistic thing, too. But also I'm kind of like, are you really that poor? You can't buy a lamp. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. 
well, one interesting thing about, I will say this. So my dad was a puppeteer who made a lot of puppets when I was growing up and his workshop was not unlike JF's. Oh, interesting. And they were like the way that he just had like bodies and and like, you know, that was kind of how my dad lived. And I wonder if my dad was weirdly inspired by Blade Runner. So we check back in with Deckard, who has a dream about a unicorn. And then he launches into his investigation. And this is where we get the enhance scene. Yeah, it's amazing. Enhance. I actually really liked it. And I'll say two things about it. This was, see, to me, this was good sci-fi. So this is a, he has a photograph. He puts it in a computer and he says, enhance quadrant X, X 65 by a hundred percent. And of course, law and order style, the computer is able to enhance it. And I love that he's talking to it like Alexa. It just made me think, like, I wonder if a lot of our modern tech is just, like, Jeff Bezos watched Blade Runner a lot and was like, we gotta have that. A computer you can just bark commands at. Well, I mean, I think a lot of science fiction winds up having computers that are conversationally intelligent. Yeah. Like, you can just talk to them. Sure, sure. I mean, look at the fly. and the fly. His fucking, like, 1980s computer is like, what would you like me to do, Mr. Brundle? Yeah. It's like computers. It's like... Should I run your Brundle program? You know, it just it like it like is on a first name basis with him, kind and, of thing. And that's what we have now with Alexa and Siri. I mean, that is how and that is kind of what modern tech has become. Yeah, but we only just got there in <laughs> 2019. <laughs> um, but I liked also liked because I had to do a little bit of video uh, programming in my career, and so when he was like move over. 45 up 30 that is kind of like when i used to do video projection work that is how you do think about it as being on a graph and you do have to give coordinates to where you want the image to land yeah no it made sense so it's like i mean as silly as the uh stereotype that you can just take a thing and enhance it is because it's not he does put a little actual effort into like specifying what should be done yeah Yeah. and there's and it's and it's like but it's it's more believable than what you would expect a beat cop to have available to them on law and order sure uh, but he does do a strange thing where he's able to like look around the corner of the photo. It's a little weird. And he sees Nora or Zora. Zora. Zora in the tub. Yeah. Well, so he, this leads him not only to Zora, but through subsequent investigations, he, it, he figures out that what he found was an artificial snake scale. Yes. That leads him to Zora. And so he spends some time at a bar and drunk dials Rachel. Who, oh, uh, she's also come and visit him at his apartment at this point. Right, because, you know, as a result of the Voight-Com test, she has now realized that she might be a replicant, and he confirms it for her, which she finds very disturbing. Yeah, and he's a dick about it. He is a dick about it. And what's more, Tyrell is also a dick about it, because she says Tyrell won't even see her anymore. Yeah. Which, you know, her world has just, like, been destroyed, basically. You know, it's pretty pretty fucked up actually i didn't realize that i didn't realize also that uh she didn't know she was a replicant going into the test yeah well that's part of well, why that she is did cruel. so well I, I suppose that's cruel i do see it and, and it is cruel um and also it's cruel that you said he's a dick about it the way he's a dick about it is that he like basically tells her all her memories he knows all her memories because he read her file yeah and that must be very disturbing and then later in the movie she says what can you tell me about my file and he's like that's confidential yeah anyway yeah so he drunk dials her but she refuses to see him yeah 
But um, but he is at the right place. Yes. So he goes in to see Zora. He uses his nerd voice to infiltrate the uh, stripper bar. He's like, well, ma'am, I actually represent the performers union of the world. I need to make sure you're uh, we're hired under best practices here. I hope that's OK. Meanwhile, she's like, I'm just going to strip naked and take a shower in front of you. Like, well, she's a stripper. What does she care? Yeah, I know. But it, it uh, yeah, yeah, sure. I do want to say to her look like when she's getting off her job, I think is really cool. All the like bedazzled she has on her skin yeah i think that looks really interesting. that goes that she washes off in the shower yeah but anyway so he um he doesn't do a very good job of fooling her so she gets the drop on him uh starts trying to kill him but then people come in so she decides to book it and runs away yeah but, i think the reason she doesn't attack him is because she's she's trying to keep the she doesn't want to be outed as a replicant well she's strangling him but then people come into the room right but if she was i mean if she's a super strong replicant she could just finish strangling him and then kill anyone else like i i, I assume the I reason mean, she stops she's outed as a replicant like that mm-hmm. that that ship has sailed uh yeah well then i don't know why she bothers to not kill him just poor writing i guess well it's not a great decision on her part it's not a great decision <laughs> it's not a great decision on her part because it's not a great decision on her part because she does get uh she does get killed in one of the more beautiful shots of the movie yeah uh so um She's got on that cellophane raincoat. Yeah. And then she goes through about 55 panes of glass. And he's shooting her. He, over and over. Over and over again. And it's the blood is streaming down the cellophane raincoat. Yeah. It's quite good. Yeah, it's it's memorable. Um, uh, the police swoop in. But unfortunately, Leon also swoops in because he's there. Yeah. He beats the shit out of Deckard for a minute and then gets ready to kill him by uh, putting his fingers through Deckard's eyes. Yeah. Oh, fuck. There's a lot of eye stuff in this movie, as I think you might have noticed. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, artificial life forms like the owl and some of the replicants, their eyes glow in certain instances. Yes. They're, you know, they visit the guy whose job is to build eyes. Yeah. And there's several deaths involving the eyes. Well, and all the close up images of them during the The, Voight comp test. Yes. The opening shot to the eye looking at the cityscape. So, yeah, a lot of eye stuff. Uh, but fortunately, Rachel does show up and she gets the gun and she caps Leon. Yes, thank God. Although uh, she maybe shouldn't be there because Harrison Ford has just gotten orders from uh, M. Emmett Walsh that he has to retire her. Yeah, which she ran away leads to one of the most uh, the hardest scenes in in the movie. Yes. So this is where we get to the infamous rapey scene. Yeah. Where Harrison Ford and Rachel are back at his place. He's recovering from his injuries. The, he, they talk a little bit more about her situation. She has a very good line here, too, where um, she's coming down off of, like, the jitters of having killed someone. And he talks about, like, that's just part of the business. And she says, I'm not in the business. I am the business. Yeah. It's a great line. Yeah. And well-delivered, too. Uh, I think that might be one of the better-delivered lines in the entire movie frankly but um she tries to leave and he doesn't let her yeah he makes advances on her and then forces the door shut and then basically forces her to kiss him and it's very me too-y and bad yeah it's not great and you know the i mean the you could say maybe she's ambivalent i mean i this is unless he's a replicant this doesn't make any sense at all well, I think, too, it's like a noir thing where it's like the hard-boiled detective is dealing with the femme fatale 
And then, you know, the femme fatale is like, no, I'm not interested. And he's like, yes, you are. And, you know, he kisses her. She's like, no. And he's like, come on. And he kisses her. And then she's finally like, oh, you're right. And then, like, goes for it. And, like, that's how it used to be written all the time. And it isn't until embarrassingly recently that we start thinking about, like, maybe you should start taking no for an answer the first time. Yeah, that women have agency. And if they don't want to do something, you shouldn't coax them into it. Well, it's not only that, too, but think about her specifically like she's kind of a newborn yeah right like she doesn't even know what she wants she's in this incredibly like okay she's in a vulnerable state just because of what she is she doesn't have a lot of world experience because of being a newborn relatively newborn replicant but also she's just had her world destroyed and is in this weird headspace where it's like i don't even know who i am i don't know what's real anymore you know it's like he's also charged with he's a threat to her because he's a blade runner and he's supposed to by law kill her yes and not only is he a huge threat to her, he's also her really her only chance at survival because Tyrell won't see her and she's run away. So she can't go back there. She doesn't have a world to go back to. All she can really do is rely on the, you know, good intentions of Harrison Ford to let her keep hiding at his place and maybe help her get away. She needs him. Now, the whole thing is super icky. And it made me think of, have you seen the Clint Eastwood movie, High Plains Drifter? No. It's it's this movie that he made where, you know, he had made a lot of Westerns where he rolls into town and is the hero and kills the bad guy. And it took that trope and flipped it on its head. In High Plains Drifter, he rolls into town, kills the bad guy, and then drags a debutante and into a barn and rapes her. Because he's worse than the bad guy is the point. Oh, cool. And I, no, it's, I mean, it's not, I mean, I was I'm like. being sarcastic. Well, it's like, I guess this was a thing, like, anti-heroes were a thing in the 70s and the early 80s in movies. And, and maybe this was like, female sexual violence was one way to get that across. Because I don't think we're supposed to like. Uh, well, it is a way to get that across, except it, it was a way that we relied on to get that across, like, all the time. Yeah. Like, it was, it was overused. Oh, yeah, totally. And I mean. I guess it's only just a. I mean, I don't know. I think if you're going to make this movie again, you wouldn't. This this would not. No, indeed. Happen this way, right? Yeah. So, all right. So that's that scene. Um, we go back to Pris and uh, JF Sebastian, and she's got. Oh, God damn, that makeup she has looks cool when she spray paints her face. Yeah, it looks really great. But she's like using his kit, right? She's using the kit he uses to manufacture replicants. It's not like just a makeup kit that she has, right? Well, I think it's it's the makeup for putting the finishing touches yeah. on them, yes. At this point, he seems pretty aware. I think he knows. But, you know, that is revealed to be the case when Roy gets there. Yeah. Right? And so uh, Roy reveals that they are on the planet because they want to find a way to extend their lifespan. They want to live. Yeah. And they want to meet Tyrell. And he seems sympathetic to that. Or yeah, least, no, well, he's a genuinely good person. He he definitely doesn't want to die. Uh, Roy or Sebastian? Seba- no, it's J- J.F. Sebastian. Well, there's that, but I, he, yeah, he does seem like he actually cares about their plight. Yeah. They say they want to meet Tyrell, so he takes them to meet him. Now this, I could have told you was what was going to happen. And what's that? Roy murders Tyrell. Right, so first, though... When I talked about Tyrell being kind of a creep and a bastard, so one, there's the way he treats Rachel, sure, and maybe the way he treats Deckard, which we'll talk about. But then there's this scene where Roy shows up, and Roy is smart and starts running through the ways that Tyrell could try to experiment to actually like undo the failsafe in them and extend their life. And each 
you know, idea he comes up with and, and throws out there, Tyrell is like, we tried it and it led to this awful problem. We tried it and let it, it led to that awful problem. And they just keep going through it until there's nothing that can be done. Realize that he knows this because for all intents and purposes, they were conducting grisly human, like human-ish experiments. They did this to replicants. That's how they know. There were, for all intents and purposes, people on operating tables having this done to them. And when he says it created a virus, he was dead before he even got off the slab. That happened to somebody. Got it. You know, and that he's Dr. Mengele. Yeah, I, he. Well, it's a it's a movie that came well after it, but it might be a a, fic, a fictional property that predates it. But it's very much like the Island of Doctor Moreau, sure, where they finally go after the doctor. You know, he's it's like uh, it reminded me a lot of that scene. And I suppose, you see his previous experiments. Well, it's like yeah. Well, Marlon Brando's like all the animals are circling him, and Marlon Brando's like, oh, I, I, you're my children. I, I love you. And they're like, we've seen yeah, because they've seen all of his. At that point, they've broken in the lab and seen like the torture evil aspect of it. And to to what you were just talking about, too, when Roy gets there, he comments on the situation of meeting his literal creator. Yeah. Yeah. So he kills Tyrell and we get the eyes again. Yeah. That's how he chooses well, it's to a, kill it's him. It's the most violent scene. And it's huge. It's just it's good. It's pretty disgusting. It's disturbing. Yeah. Uh, and then sadly, he also kills JF. Oh, I guess I didn't notice that. Well, it's not shown, but, you know, you see Roy starting. He runs away. Roy follows. Then Roy's going down the elevator alone. Ah. And then and then later, one of the cops is like, you know, one of the bodies is J.F. Sebastian. He lives in the Bradbury building. Harrison Ford hears that over the radio. Ah, I see. Goes to the Bradbury building. So here we are at the end. Harrison Ford enters the Bradbury building and Pris is hiding amongst the toys. This looks really cool. And I have to compliment Daryl Hannah on her physicality here because she looks so much like a puppet in this scene. And she's doing an excellent job controlling her breathing or possibly holding her breath. Because yeah. her chest, you can usually see... She looks like a doll. Yeah. Yeah, it looks very cool. She gets the drop on him and beats him up for a while, but he ultimately does shoot her. And God, the way she's thrashing about on the ground is so disturbing to watch. Yeah, and there's like when you talk about particulate, is there is there like sand coming out of her? There's definitely a particulate, at least in the in the shot. Well, I'd there's say. certainly kicking up a lot of dust from the filthy, dirty old building. Yeah, but um, you know they bleed. Yeah, so it could be blood. Well, anyway, I just remember being like, this is a visually interesting. Yeah, uh, but he finally puts her out of her misery, and that's when Roy gets home, <laughs> and I do. I was thinking about how, so Roy started off ahead of Harrison Ford because he kills Tyrell and then starts heading back. Harrison Ford kind of gets at least all most of the way to Tyrell and then doubles back. And it just shows like Harrison Ford's in the cop car. So he gets there first. Roy, I guess, had to take the bus. Yeah. So he was crossing LA the hard way. But then how did Pris beat Roy? She never went. She didn't go at all? She wasn't there. Is she not in the elevator with him? No, she, th- she stayed there. Oh, okay. I thought yeah. three of them were in the elevator for some reason. No, it's just the two of them. Must have been high. But um, yeah, so Roy and Deckard fight. Roy's got him outclassed from the get-go. And yeah. And is basically just toying with him the entire time. Yep. But we get to the end, and Deckard has tried to jump from one building to another, failed, and is hanging from the other building and starts to fall. But at this last moment, Roy decides to in fact, save him. Yeah. He brings him back up to the building and this is where we get the famous tears in rain monologue. You weren't impressed by this, huh? 
I was so baffled. I was so completely baffled as to what was happening. Well, so this does seem to be where you started to lose kind of like you you felt more like you didn't understand what was going on. So let's talk about it. Where do you think you stopped uh, following or like, you know, what are you confused about? They I, I think at first I was just confused why Roy saved him. Uh huh. Because obviously you've been playing cat and mouse with him, but uh, and it was again talking about Harrison Ford being kind of not very good. Like he doesn't do anything smart. And uh, I mean, maybe climbing up to the second floor or whatever. But he, he never has a chance. Like Roy right. is on top the entire time. Yeah. No, there's they're not on even footing. And then when he's about to slip off and die, and Roy saves him, and then Roy launches into a monologue. Maybe I didn't follow the monologue clearly enough. And then all of a sudden, that you can see behind Roy a police helicopter rising behind the building and then all of a sudden ever james almost throws a gun to harrison ford and says you did a great job kid like i i didn't i did not take away what i was supposed to take away from that okay so as roy is fighting harrison ford through the building he is starting to die that's why his hand is starting to go and why he keeps massaging it and then ultimately oh. puts the pin through it to kind of get it going again. Oh. Then finally, when they're at the end, Roy is faced with the choice of letting him die or killing him himself or saving him. And it because he is in the last moments of his own life, he decides, you know what? I'm not going to just kill him. I'll save his life. And it's it's not worth it to him to kill him anymore because he's he's dying. He's in his last moments. So he saves Harrison Ford. He gives this very uh, elegiac monologue about how I've seen all of these things. And he goes through the things he's seen, you know, and had you heard any of these quotes before, like um, attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion, sea beams glittering in the dark by the Tannhauser Gate? Had you ever heard? No, but they sounded it sounded vaguely familiar. All of these moments will soon be gone, like tears in the rain. You yeah, hadn't heard that before. No. Well, it's it's considered to be a pretty great and iconic monologue, and I think it's absolutely gorgeously delivered by Rutger Hauer. And those are the last moments of his life, and he dies right there. So his head falls, and he expires. And that's af- at some point after that, the police arrive, and uh, you know you see the spinner rising off the side of the building, and Gaff shows up, and he's like, "Hey, Harrison Ford, you did it." And it's like, well, I see he didn't really do it, but, you know, whatever. So I did. I mean, you know, I was not looking at my phone during this. I, you know, had the phone down during the movie. So I don't know if it was just that I lost. I broke my attention for a second, but I missed. I guess I didn't understand why his head. I guess I didn't realize he was expiring. I see. So I would say, Ridley, go back. If you can George Lucas it up. Maybe a little more CGI. Get a little Maybe they could put like Sebulba in the background yeah. <laughs> and like, you know, some like fucking bullshit CGI in the foreground. And maybe Jabba the Hutt. The and then Jabba the Hutt could roll in and like eat, uh, eat the, something. The expired. It, yeah. Right. Yeah. And there's just all this extraneous bullshit. We don't That would need. help me understand it. Yeah. No, that would make it much better. Now, I think the real, I mean, I guess it's, uh, I, so he, let me tell you what I was thinking. Okay. I thought he stabbed himself in the hand. To level the playing field. Okay. Because he was, it was too easy. I thought that's why he put the the nail through his hand. And, uh, and I thought that there was like, there was an interesting thing when he, because I think that's what the hand that he extends to Harrison Ford. It is. 
And I thought uh, at the very end, like my takeaway was he realized that Harrison Ford is a replicant and doesn't know it. That could be true. But I still I mean, so I didn't take away that he had expired. I was still like, what happened to Roy? I see. So that's my bad. You know, did that. Do you feel like that impacted your enjoyment of the film? Let me be 100% clear. I thought it was great. Yeah, no, but I'm just saying, like, you know, when the movie ended, you did seem very confused. I was like, what What the heck? I, but yeah. I, but I mean, I, I liked it. I mean, I don't, like, I like to talk about how you don't necessarily have to understand what's on the screen. Like, you should, you should have to do some homework. I feel a little bit embarrassed that you had to explain it to me like that, but I didn't dislike it because I didn't understand it. Okay, cool. And cool. I, and I thought the next scene was like, then we get the scene where well then things then things continue to take this turn yeah so the movie uh has basically one more scene so gaff arrives he tells harrison ford you've done a man's job sir and then he also turns around and says it's too bad she won't live but then again who does referring of course to rachel who presumably also has a built-in uh time limit as a replicant but um Harrison Ford goes and recovers Rachel, tells her that he loves her, and then they start to get ready to try to escape, and they head off into an unknown future. But before they do, they notice throughout the film, Gaff has been making little bits of origami and leaving them around places, and on the floor outside of Deckard's apartment is a little origami unicorn. Yes. And that's the last thing Deckard sees, and he's kind of like, hmm. And then they get in the elevator and they go. Yes. And so this is something that I was a little bit surprised was not in the movie. But my understanding is there's a myth, a culture or a mythology that robot when robots do dream, they dream of unicorns. And we're supposed to know that Harrison Ford is a is an android because he has the unicorn. The unicorn ties into the unicorn dream he had earlier in the movie. Right. So. The suggestion I think you can take from that is that in the same way that Harrison Ford has read Rachel's file, Gaff has read Harrison Ford's file, and Harrison Ford, as a replicant, has had implanted memories himself. One of his baseline kind of like humanizing memories is to have dreams about a unicorn, because it's humanizing to dream, I guess. And so Gaff, leaving this unicorn behind, is basically saying, hey... You're a replicant. I know it. And I could have killed you and her because I was here, but I let you go. Yeah. And, you know, so let's take this moment to now dive into that huge question about this film. Do you think that Deckard is a replicant? I think, uh, yeah, I think I thought that, but I think that you're supposed to interpret it however you want. I don't think there's a definitive yes or no. Yeah. And is this the part of the podcast where you go, well, Josh, there is a definitive yes or no. Ridley Scott clarified it with this quote. <laughs> well, in point of fact, actually, it was so it is designed to be ambiguous. However, different people involved in the movie in different ways have different feelings about what the actual answer is well you're not going to have like a 12 monkeys-esque rift over this because i honestly don't have a strong opinion one way or the other uh i will say that uh traditionally i've been agnostic but we'll get into my personal feelings after i lay some foundation for you sure okay so the foundation i want to lay is that um 
between the theatrical version and the final cut version that we saw, the evidence one way or another is different. So in the theatrical cut, the unicorn dream is not in the movie. It's just the gaff leaves the unicorn origami behind, but without the unicorn dream, it's more of a statement of like, hey, I was here and could have stopped you, but I didn't, as opposed to saying, hey, it's here, I could have stopped you and didn't. And also, by the way, I read your replicant file. So there's that. And then also the voiceover, the tacked on happy, the tacked on happy ending at the end that I talked about is after they get on the elevator, it shows Harrison Ford and Rachel in a car driving out into a much more pristine, natural environment up in the mountains. <laughs> Just like Brazil. And he has this voiceover where he says, like, we got away. Rachel might have that four-year expiration date, but who knows? Maybe she doesn't. She is a special replicant after all. I guess we'll find out. And that's sort of the And it's it's sort of like... You know, it's there's less there to suggest that he is a replicant, but um, I so, think in in this cut though, it's that appears to be what. Yes, I would agree, but uh, here's some evidence for the various sides. Because again, it's not just about what we think, but this is a question that has torn nerddom apart since time immemorial. This is one of the central questions oh my God. of the nerd religion. This is like monophysitism. This is like Family Guy v. Simpsons? Yes, exactly. I no. L-O-T-R uh, versus Star Wars? Star Wars versus Star Trek. No, this is... Uh, Star Trek versus Stargate? Oh my God. No, this is, Josh, this is, is Deckard a replicant? This gets its own entry. Okay. So, number one, in the original story, the Philip K. Dick story, Deckard is a human. Amongst the creator opinions, uh, one of the producers, uh, this guy Dealey, uh, mm-hmm. Michael Dealey, both he and Harrison Ford think that Deckard is a human. Ridley Scott says he thinks that Deckard is a replicant. Fancher, uh, who wrote uh, at least the early drafts, uh, Hampton Fancher, he says, as a writer would, it's meant to be deliberately ambiguous. So, uh, But what about David Peoples? He, as far as I could find, has not weighed in officially. Mm. So um, here are some things that people point to when they say that there's evidence, besides what I've said already, that Deckard is a replicant. Number one, Deckard's apartment has tons and tons of photographs in it, which, as we've seen from Leon and also in some of uh, Harrison Ford's terrible voiceover that you haven't heard, uh, replicants are attracted to photographs because it gives them sort of like an artificial sense of having a past that they're otherwise lacking. And you also notice that Deckard's photos are all these like old timey black and white or sepia photos that like probably couldn't even possibly be really his. He's just sort of either collecting them obsessively or like whoever has designed his backstory has just littered his apartment with them. Yeah, I noticed the similarity between his apartment and Leon's, for right. sure. Uh, there's the scene where Rachel says to him, uh, you know that Voight-Com test of yours, did you ever take that test yourself, Deckard? And he doesn't answer. He is asleep, but we don't get an answer. Yeah. There's a point, apparently, where Deckard's eyes glow uh, in one of the scenes, which is the same way other artificial life forms like the owl and some of the other replicants do. Harrison Ford claims that this was just like something that happened where like the light caught his eyes and it just happened in the moment and isn't meant to actually be significant. But, you know, you can take that as you will. And then there's Gaff. 
And I'm going to tie some of the gaff stuff into my experience watching it this time. So my position used to be that I was happy being agnostic. I, I didn't really feel like it was a question that needed to be answered. But if I had to make a call, I would say that I think he's human. Partly based on the fact that I thought, based on the version I saw, the theatrical cut, the story is better if he's a human. I just felt like it was more interesting if you had the story of a human man who fell in love with this artificial person. Mm -hmm. This time, though, the way it went, I saw it much more as I think he's clearly a replicant. And here's a few of the things that I saw this time that made me think that. So when Gaff interacts with him, Gaff acts way less like a partner or a coworker and much more like a handler. A, sh a chaperone. Right. He, you know, he goes and fetches him. He's always driving him around and kind of hovering around and keeping an eye on him. Right. And also, um, you know, the way he keeps like talking about, you've done a man's job, sir. And just sort of is keeping tabs on him. Like Gaff is the blade runner, mm -hmm. you know? And then, so there's the first scene where he comes to the office and the boss says um, they need him because he's the best, but he's retired, right? And it's uh, my, my sort of thinking was in a scene. I started thinking, you know what? They need him because he's the best. He's he's not the best. The guy who got killed in the first scene was the best. Deckert is a replicant who they have built to hunt other replicants because the best got killed. And that early scene where he comes to M. Emmett Walsh's office reads much more like sort of Harrison Ford has just been born and Gaff and M. Emmett Walsh are doing their job to help like establish his, you know, artificial backstory for him. They're like, yeah, you're just coming back from retirement, but we need you back. And it's sort of like their way of easing him back into the environment that he's actually new to. Okay. You notice that like he never interacts with any other actual policemen. And I mean, I know it's a big city, but no other police ever recognize him or anything like that. No, but he does flash his badge. Well, he has a badge. And they he gave him a badge. calls in his number and things like that. Well, it's a real, sure. he, they gave him real credentials. Sure. But like, he doesn't have a history. You know, they're like, we need you to come for one back for one last job. It reads more like an artificial backstory than a real, you know, th that's been made for him. And so he he's supposedly the best Blade Runner they have. And yet in his early scene talking to M. Emmett Walsh, he has to have the boss explain to him that replicants have a failsafe of a four year lifespan. Yeah, he didn't already know that, even though he's the best blade runner on the force yeah there are a few things i would actually like to like i think a second viewing of that scene would be helpful yeah and and one other scene too i just want to point to when he goes to see tyrell the, there's them talking about rachel and the advanced type of replicant that she is and how she is advanced because she has artificial memories and all that stuff watching it this time it read to me that like Tyrell knows that Harrison Ford, too, is like this. Everything that they're saying about Rachel, Harrison Ford is talking about Rachel. Tyrell is, in fact, talking about Harrison Ford to Harrison Ford. He's fucking with him because yeah. Tyrell knows. Tyrell would have been the one who had to build him. Yeah. You know what I mean? It just it reads much more to me this time like Ty like like Deckard is clearly a replicant. Well, OK, a couple of things I'll throw out there. 
it's possible that they're saying he's the best because he's the best at applying the Voight-Kampff test because you can tell Holden is not good at it. He's really argumentative. He's combative with Leon. He doesn't do anything to make him feel comfortable and he gets shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, at the very least, Harrison Ford, even if he's not a totally competent detective, seems like when you watch him apply the test to Rachel, I don't know. It's a different It's a different vibe. Now, obviously, it's a different, different atmosphere, but he seems much more successful at it. Uh, but then again, we could be watching a robot interviewing a robot. So, well, he would have been designed to be good yeah. at the Blade Runner jobs too. Also, this is less an evidential question and more just an actual question I have. At the end, uh, Roy Batty knows his name. And had there ever been a point earlier in the film where he would have learned that? Because he calls him Deckard. And I was like, when did he learn his name? Yeah, good point. I don't but know. I, I mean, even if Deckard was a replicant, I don't know how Roy Batty would have had any insight into who he was. So it just, I don't know, it just was something I picked up. Well, I would say there's more evidence. I would say there... There is more evidence for him being a replicant than against. In this version, yes. Uh, particularly with the unicorn dream. And well, I would say thing. one piece of evidence you didn't bring up that I that I thought was actually a thing was the piano playing. Uh, he plays piano at one point, and then later in the movie, she has a monologue uh, right before the really icky stuff about how she has memories of taking piano lessons. Well, that's after she plays. But I guess I'm saying is there he has played piano earlier in the movie. We've seen him kind of messing around on it when he's drinking whiskey after she leaves the first time. And then she does it. And then she does it. And I thought, uh, I don't know why we would have seen him play piano and then see her also play piano if that wasn't a thing. Cool. I like a piece of evidence. Um, I like I like it. But the only other thing against that sort of bothers me are the two things. One is why isn't he super strong in any capacity if he's if he's supposed to there's that but i think the idea is that he like rachel is supposed to be designed to believe that he is human so if they designed him to be physically superhuman he would he would figure it out oh he does kind of snap his fingers back into joint which i don't think is a thing you can do well regardless of that though I, i i think the answer to that is that he has been designed to be physically human yeah which I mean, also could be that he is a slightly older model than the Nexus 6. He could that be the too. Nexus 5. Sure. Who's been retired and is being brought back. Although, like I said, I uh, my belief is that Harrison Ford is, in fact, a newborn. Like, he is, he has been custom-made to this job. Sure. You know, like, it, like, Gaff finding him is, like, his first moments of life, basically, you know? Hearing your list, if I was going to have to go on the internet and argue a point, I'd argue he's a, a replicant. Yeah. It's a more interesting story that way. Well, I mean, I would go back to actually kind of liking the idea of a human and replicant falling in love as opposed to two replicants falling in love. But the idea of two artificial beings both, you know, together evolving to a more complex state of being together is also pretty cool. So, you know, that's fine, too. The unicorn dream and the unicorn drop at the end. Well, yeah. So the unicorn dream, you know in one version of the movie versus the other puts its thumb on the scale pretty heavily. Also, I really hope that horse was well treated. I felt really bad that that horse had to have makeup on its head to have a unicorn put on it. I'm sure the horse was fine. Or do you think they got a real unicorn? Oh my God. Do you think, you know, Ridley Scott uses a lot of unicorns in legend too. I wonder, I wonder if that was like a, like, is that like, is Ridley Scott's 
irresponsible behavior on set the reason why unicorns are now extinct yeah (laughs) there were a handful of them left this is why the production was so benighted is that everyone was mad that so many unicorns died in the making of this film i didn't i didn't see a PETA symbol on this tom cruise tom cruise actually crushed two of them oh my god And tom cruise is a small guy yeah how did a tiny man crush a unicorn unicorns are very brittle oh so they look like they look like horses they look strong everyone makes that mistake that's why they're not around anymore and that only makes the origami even more apt because that's also very fragile yes yeah uh no i mean i i i think that's uh i mean that's funny though so it's like uh greedo shot first is decker a replicant it depends on the version i mean I, I'm, I'm gonna have to go look at some reddit threads about this because uh, oh. i'm sure there's a lot of material on the internet well don't worry josh because that question is definitively answered in blade runner 2 oh right there's a sequel yeah it definitely says hard and fast one way or another in that one so that's blade runner let's talk a little bit about how blade runner did shall we after watching it i would be surprised if it did well all right, well, this movie had a budget of $28 million. Do you, do you want to guess nearly, the box office? Nearly twice, actually three times Brazil because they only spent 10. Uh, I think it made 16. It made $33.8 million. So it broke even. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it gets complicated with that way you're supposed to imagine marketing, but you never know how much they spent. But long story short, it wasn't a complete disaster, but it also was not a huge financial success at the time i I wouldn't go so far as to say it was a huge flop but it it didn't do great it did okay opening weekend but after that it kind of like was eh. and part of the reason for that is because blade runner opened in the summer of 1982 et here are a few of the movies it opened against the thing Oh. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Oh, boy. Conan the Barbarian. Okay. And E.T., the extraterrestrial. Yeah. I would also point out that also coming out that summer was Poltergeist, Tron, Rocky Three, The Road Warrior, and Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Wow. That is considered by many people to be arguably the best summer and in fact maybe even the best year for film of all time i would have really seen the winter yeah i don't think it's a summer movie (laughs) well regardless can you like think about how many of those films are fucking iconic yeah and this doesn't have the mass appeal it just couldn't survive against an et it couldn't it couldn't share the box office with et and the second star trek movie and also, I mean, if you're into a more, like, niche interesting sci-fi movie, think about you've got Star Trek Two, you've got The Thing, you've got Tron. Like, you know, that market was pretty saturated that summer. Now let me drop a little something on you, Dave. I've never seen Tron. Oh. And Tron is, like, the movie... Tron and Blade Runner are often confused for each other and often talked about in, like, the same... Uh, are they? Yeah. Oh. I mean, maybe I confuse them. I mean, there's a period where it was, like like they're the two sci-fi movies from the 80s that i haven't seen i see so when you said people confuse them you i meant i confuse them I see. Okay. now i so that when i when i was doing the, the the pre on this i was pretty confident in the things i was saying but i knew in my head there was an outside chance you're gonna be like that is tron that is <laughs> tron that is also tron but i believe tron is jeff bridges 
I don't want to say because evidently that's a stay tuned we're going to have to do. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't mind it because it also got a sequel recently. Yeah, one that I also liked. So interesting. Speaking about liking it. uh, So the movie was received okay critically at the time, but its reputation as a cult classic has only grown to the point where right now on Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 90% and its audience score is 91%. I, I really liked it. I like it a lot, too. I know I was down on the performances, and maybe in hindsight I was being a little bit rough because I was fixated mostly on how how sort of, I would say, disappointing Harrison Ford's was. Maybe that changed my thought about all of them because, like I said, uh, Daryl Hannah was pretty good, and uh, Sean uh, Young. Sean Young was good. Uh, I think Rutger Howard was right, di- right on, maybe just not next level, but I could see you considering it next level. And, you know, some of the support, like the, the supporting cast of Emma Walsh and uh, Edward James Olmos, they, they all they all come in pretty, pretty good. James Hong. Well, let me tell you what the pros had to say about this movie. On the positive end, uh, here's Owen Gleiberman writing for The Washington Post. He said this is perhaps the only science fiction film that can be called transcendental. Josh Larson writing for Larson on film also film spotting called this the definitive sci-fi noir yeah i would absolutely say that i I unquestionably agree janet maslin for the new york times said as intricately detailed as anything a science fiction film has yet envisioned Mm -hmm. also clearly true and then lastly i'll quote kate muir of the times uh, the uk times it seems ageless despite being set in 2019 this is a future more murky than shining, where hardened men move among the low life, low lowlifes in a warren of streets lit like an Edward Hopper painting below pyramid-like skyscrapers. Yeah. On the negative side, and I had to do a little digging to find negative stuff, but I did find it. Oh, did Ebert? Ebert didn't like it. Uh, Ebert does like it. I'll mention him last. First, though, Amy Nicholson, writing for IE Weekly, said paradoxically scott's crowded misty neon streetscape seems even murkier fuzz i chalked up to vhs tapes is production designer lawrence g paul dumping ashtrays in the air wow so someone didn't care for the way it looked david piri of Time Out wrote the android villains are neither menacing nor sympathetic when ideally they should have been both this leaves scott's picturesque violence looking dull and exploitative I tend to think some of my criticism it sounds is, like you might agree with is that in line little, with yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Michael Phillips for the Chicago Tribune actually gave a positive review, but did I did pull this from it, which he said, Ridley Scott created a triumph of retro-futuristic design over narrative or character richness. So it also going to what we're saying where we love and this is a pretty common theme in people's reactions to the movie where like it's a gorgeous like piece of production design, but maybe some of the you know the performances aren't there um and then lastly ebert did like the movie he gave it four out of four stars he wrote this is a seminal film building an old building on older classics like metropolis or things to come but establishing a pervasive view of the future that has influenced science fiction films ever since now i think ebert is an excellent and was an excellent critic and i'm a big fan of his work but i don't understand how he gives this movie that review and digs brazil the way that he did it's unless he was offended by 
maybe the influence he like maybe because this got to this similar material first and he felt it was like brazil was redundant but i don't i don't see how you give this four stars in brazil you know the negative review he did i mean i i I see what you're saying i i really do i I do though have to say that like ebert i think this is just a better film yeah i think it might be I mean, here's the thing, not from a performance standpoint and not from a humor standpoint, but it's not trying to be a funny movie. Um, But uh, there's definitely some overall aesthetic uh, wins here. And I'd still say for me, Brazil is above it, but I would slot this into my top 10 or 20 sci-fi movies. Same. Also, though, can I say this? It's very upsetting to watch this movie and to know that Ridley Scott pulled out of Dune. It's it's dune could have i actually think dune might have been good in ridley scott's hands after seeing this it's interesting you should say that more on that to come catchphrase of the podcast so well let's talk for a moment about the legacy of this film okay i know what you're gonna say this movie was not initially a success however it has a huge cult status now keith phipps of the next picture show speculates that he thinks that the cult uh, reputation of this film really really started to kick off in 1992 with the release of the director's cut of this film which made certain changes from the theatrical cut and that was the movie you were looking for me to name in 1992 <laughs> i mean i didn't think you would but i was just laying some breadcrumbs that's pretty funny tasha robinson also of the next picture show has a quote that i think you will appreciate she noted that the movie has a design that has a brazil like janky ass clutched together feel to it <laughs> well it predates brazil so it's a little unfair but yeah sure yeah uh as an influence this movie's style uh particularly like kind of the, the darkness of it but also it's kind of retro futuristic design has influenced way more things that I could even possibly name. And it's like from movies to games, to animes, to books and comics and TV shows. I'll call out a couple of the things from the Wikipedia page, which is specifically uh, the ghost in the shell. And also kind of part and parcel with that. It kind of like fed into the creation of the cyberpunk genre. Okay. And then also it's been acknowledged as an influence on the Battlestar Galactica reboot. Absolutely. Yeah. But look feel even the use of the word skin job uh and uh wise and edward james almost <laughs> yes edward james almost is presence too it has an interesting uh an eye zombie the character blaine reminds me a lot of roy certainly in his character's look and sometimes his sort of cold uh evilness yeah i totally see it i totally see it and in fact Last night, I just caught up with the most recent episode of iZombie, which was a noir episode. Isn't it off the air? No, they're doing their last season right now. Hey, plug for iZombie. Go start watching it. Not our first plug for iZombie either. Oh, boy. So the uh, for me, too, uh, I noticed that there's some early shots establishing the, sk- the cityscape. And it's got like looking up at those kind of noirish retro futuristic buildings. And it's got the the Zeppelin going by. And to me, it called to mind the design work for Batman, the animated series from the 1990s. Yeah. And I would even say the Chris Nolan Batmans. Sure. Sure. And and I mean, also the uh, the Tim Burton ones. Yeah. Sure. Now, um, I mean, Ridley Scott. Good for you. Yeah. The dialogue and music in Blade Runner has been sampled in music 
more than any other film of the 20th century. Now that's interesting. I know. It is also not sourced on Wikipedia, so we'll just have to take their word for it. Is that because of Roy? You think Roy's monologue? Well, and also the soundtrack is considered to be pretty iconic. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, there's the Roy, the the Tears and Rain monologue. Um, I also want to call out too that um, the soundtrack is by Vangelis, a Greek musician. Just to acknowledge that person. What up, Vangelis? This is a fun thing I pulled out too during the research. There's something called the Blade Runner curse, which is that, as you noted while watching the film, a lot of logos and product placement exist in this movie it's uh, part of the design but it also rather conveniently lets you put a lot of product placement in i, I wrote down coke and atari for sure yeah so the logos for atari bell coca-cola cuisinart and pan am which were all market leaders at the time were prominently displayed as product placement in the film and all experienced major setbacks after the film's release. And indeed, some of those companies ain't around no more. Well, Atari, I mean, I was going to say Atari, like you would actually think was just a made up thing. Now, if you watch Pan Am, Pan Am was a airline. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are they no longer in business. They are not around no more. Ooh, yeah. And so lastly, just this is considered one of the great films. It's There's documentaries on it. It was uh, selected for preservation by the U.S. National Film Registry. It's very frequently taught in university film and writing courses. And a lot of critics consider it to be one of the greatest sci-fi films of all time. A, the, there are like too many of those lists for me to name, but just to single some of them out. AFI ranked it as the number six sci-fi film of all time. And in a poll in 2004 by The Guardian of some of the world's most preeminent scientists, they voted it as the best science fiction film ever made. I thought it was pretty, like I said, the science-y fiction stuff looked, Oh yeah, I bought it all. Me too. And then lastly, Denise Villeneuve. There was a sequel made called Blade Runner 2049, directed by Denis Villeneuve, which I like very much. And Denis Villeneuve is now going on to direct a remake of our favorite film, Dune. Uh, Which I'm excited and nervous about. We're going to watch Blade 2 later tonight. Off pod. I'm very excited for that because uh, as much as I like Blade Runner 1, I also very much liked Blade Runner 2. And I'm going to put my cards on the table about this right now. I think looking at at Blade Runner 2 you can 100% see Denis Villeneuve working his way up to doing Dune. Like the, there are things in that movie where I look at it, I'm like, there's Arrakis, there's Geedy Prime, there's Caladan. Like this, I have extremely high hopes based on what I saw in the other film. Seems that way. So Josh, what did you think of Blade Runner? I think it's a better right on i think it's better late than never i liked it i'm glad that i saw it and i think with brazil and some other ones that i've sort of capped with a caveat uh some people might find it boring but i don't think anyone would be like super disinterested in it and i think enough people i hate to say this but harrison ford probably people i think at this point are trained to think they're supposed to like him so they might cut him more slack than i did fair and also just to make sure that we're providing clarity on what that means by saying better late you think that this is like a critical film this is an essential movie that i think cinephiles need to see yeah i think that i wouldn't say my life was 
would never be changed. You know, my life would be fine if I had never seen it. I needed to see this movie. I should have seen it earlier in life. And today was a beautiful homecoming. I was super stoked to watch Blade Runner. I like this movie a lot. And I agree with you, Josh. This is an essential film. Even if you don't wind up liking it, it's just so influential. Like you see this movie and you immediately see where so many other properties came from. So this is an essential film. Like it or not, you have to see it. And I personally do like it. So I'm looking forward to watching Blade Runner 2 with Ryan Gosling, Kevin Sorbo, Christopher Lloyd, and Jennifer Jason Leigh. They're all in it, right? Yes, indeed. Uh, Rachel Lee Cook is not in this. (laughs) Why did I think that? Are either of them in Blade Runner 2? No. And also Rachel Lee Cook, not really the right age. Yeah, I didn't think that was accurate. Yeah. So anyway, that is our episode for this week. If you would like to get in touch with the podcast, please email us at betterlatethanneverpod at gmail.com or tweet us at betterlate underscore pod. Josh, do you have any plugs? No, I don't, but I do have a couple of uh, questions I'd like to ask you, Dave. Okay. You're in a house by a beach and the beach is on fire. What do you do? Let me tell you about that beach. Blam, 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 blam. Oh, no, he's a replicant. I I fracking knew it. I fracking knew it. Ah, Harrison Ford. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. (laughs) Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tenhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears.